Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Hey, this is Annie, and welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. And yes, unfortunately, I am still by myself. Don't worry, Samantha will be back. Um, But right now, due to scheduling and illness, uh, you just get me, which means I feel like I can run rampant, which is fitting. For the topic we're talking about today, I originally mentioned this a few episodes back where I wanted to talk about this idea of who deserves to die. Um, And it was based on, I've had, I mean, I've had this in the back of my head for a while, but um, it was based on a recent headline I'd seen about the very bad movie, uh, Deep Blue Sea, that I still enjoy, but is quite bad. Um... And the original ending for it. And we'll talk about that more at the end. When I was researching this, perhaps it won't surprise you, but not too many people are writing about the feminism of Deep Blue Sea. Uh, but I did find some other examples. And it kind of became a bit a bit bigger than deserves to die, almost more like deserves redemption. And that that's a whole other trope of the you get redeemed and then you die, but you don't do anything to fix all of the harm that you did. Star Wars is pretty bad about that one. But I wanted to talk about this. And I have been on a bit of a disaster movie. I've been watching a lot of them, binging a lot of them. They were big parts of my childhood. That being said, we have discussed horror movie tropes would fall under, I would say, the sort of, in heavy quotes, deserves to die. Like, who's the audience? Like, oh, yeah, they deserve to go. And in horror movies, it's often the slutty woman, uh, the best friend of the final girl, or the person of color, all of which is pretty problematic. Uh, But that's not really what we're talking about today. We have talked about that in several episodes. So if you want to go check those out, you can... I wanted to talk about more specifically in the disaster film 
um, arena, which because I'm I'm by myself today, this one's going to be a bit shorter and also not as researched as we would normally do. I would love to come back to it and get Samantha's thoughts on this. But I do have a lot of thoughts about it. And I have two, maybe three main examples of what I'm talking about. Uh, one of them being Deep Blue Sea, which we will get, we'll come back to. Don't, don't you worry. <laughs> but one of the big ones I always think of is from Jurassic World. And I know I brought this up before. I am going to have some criticisms of how women are portrayed in that movie. If you like that movie, like, I enjoyed it well enough. But yeah, just just to say, um, I did have a really funny, rousing conversation with me and a bunch of friends about (laughs) their critiques of the movie and especially how much the dinosaurs are going for, like, cost-wise. They tell me that was nowhere near enough, and I trust them. (laughs) But yeah, when I saw that movie, because I've said... I was a huge fan of Jurassic Park uh, and still still am the first one. And then we have a, an episode coming out about Dr. Ellie Sattler. And I have a really funny update about those cards I was bragging about. But when I saw this movie, it was, I think I, I had been working on the show and I, I would have, I was a feminist for sure. Uh, but immediately I was like, I don't, I feel like these are some tropes that, are pretty sexist that are happening here. But one of the big things that really, when I was watching, I was like, this is unnecessary and I really don't like it, is when, I'm assuming I don't have to break down the plot for all of you, but yeah, it's a park, the dinosaurs, the dinosaurs genetically altered and then they escape and wreak havoc and there's just not a lot of good infrastructure (laughs) to get people out. But it focuses largely on Claire, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, who we'll talk about in a second, um, who is running the park. And then Owen, who's played by Chris Pratt, uh, who is like a dinosaur whisperer, dinosaur trainer. And the fact that Claire is looked down on because she's a businesswoman and doesn't want kids. Again, more on that in a second. But... um, things go wrong, dinosaurs get out. This character uh, named Zara, who is the assistant of Claire, is tasked with watching Claire's nephews when they visit. And it was sort of an unexpected visit. Claire's sister's getting a divorce, and it just was like not good timing, but Claire agreed to do it and then was really busy and then passed them off to Zara who is played by Katie McGrath. And Katie McGrath's character is definitely in the same vein that Claire's character is. Seen as, like, not a good person because she's always on her phone. She's always busy. She's not really paying attention to these kids, which, again, were passed off on to her. And eventually the kids, like, give her the slip and escape. And there is a scene where once the the dinosaurs break out, she is brutally killed for like a long time. And when I was watching the movie, I was like, oh my gosh, it's still going. Oh my gosh, it's still going. I read she's the first woman to die on screen in Jurassic Park. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I read. (laughs) 
And it was such a long, drawn-out death. And it was kind of played as, like, almost for laughs or, like, see, she she should have done better at her job and taken better care of these kids, and now she's going to get ripped up. So she gets picked up by pterodactyls, terror something, of the flying dinosaurs, and is dropped into the grasp of another dinosaur, like the sea dinosaur. And then, so she's like thrown back and forth between them, the flying dinosaurs, is screaming, and then is dropped into the mouth of this sea dinosaur. And it just feels odd. It just feels very odd. And it was in the trailer. And in fact, it was a big part of the trailer. And one of the trailers was titled Jurassic World Trailer 2, starring Katie McGrath. And she's not really in it. Like, she's barely in it. But her death, I guess, was supposed to be some kind of representation of, oh, how gory this this could be. Or And I believe uh, Bryce Dallas Howard says, oh, she gets tortured. Um, and the director, Colin Trevorrow, uh, says that it's, quote, one of the all-time dinosaur deaths in a movie. Well, yes. But it just felt unnecessary. It, it didn't feel... A lot of people have compared it to the lawyer from the first one, the blood-sucking lawyer. But his death, even his death, while it was sort of, like, drawn out, it wasn't drawn out like that, one. But two, he had been shown to be not great. Like, he abandoned the children. He didn't care about the morality of any anything to do with the park. He was very much like, I'm just going to protect myself. He wasn't sympathetic at all. And the difference here is she's she her death scene is much longer, but also she does feel bad that these children ran away from her when she's doing her work, and she expresses that, but that's not seen as sympathetic. She is not painted as sympathetic. She's painted as someone we're supposed to kind of laugh at when she dies. And her sin is. She wasn't caring for these kids who, again, were not her kids. She was not planning to take care of, who ran away from her, and therefore she must be punished. We will revel in her death as the audience. She isn't, like, mean to them. I I mean, she's not, like, greatly developed. Again, she's not in the movie that long, but she's not terrible. (laughs) Um, But still, it's painted as if well, she deserved this. She deserved this death. That being said, though, I am not the only one who felt very jarred and disturbed by this scene. There were a couple of quotes collated by culture war reporters uh, from Reddit, uh, because there's a whole thread dedicated to this scene, I guess. Um, here are a few. Yeah, it was pretty horrifying. The character didn't even deserve it, so there was zero satisfaction. It just left me feeling violated, which I suppose it was meant to. Here's another. Yeah, I guess it logically works, but cinematically it was just cruel and unnecessary. 
I thought maybe I was overacting to that scene. It made me so uncomfortable. It was just so extended. Most deaths in Jurassic Park series are quick in adding to the thrill of the scene. This just felt cruel. Glad to see I'm not alone in this opinion. I asked my buddy, what the f*** did she do to deserve that death? And, and some people were pointing out, like, you know, the dinosaurs. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. But it, it, going back to that kind of, like, cinematically, it doesn't make sense uh, comment of, like, well, what what message are we to take from the fact that she's the one that gets this, that she's sort of the in, expendable one that we're supposed to find some kind of joy or satisfaction in her death. And it definitely made me uncomfortable. I remember watching this scene, and clearly it stuck with me where I was like, uh, <laughs> why are we supposed to rejoice at her death? That's just what it felt like to me. And I'm, I am somebody, I can admit, like I'm not usually happy when someone dies, even if they are not great. Uh, but it's just the way it was so drawn out. And yeah, she really wasn't in the movie that much to really warrant that. Uh, that being said, I wasn't originally intending to do this. But through this research, I did find a lot of commentary about Claire, Bryce Dallas Howard's character, who I also, when I saw this movie, I was like, wait, <laughs> wait. Um, because she is such a trope. She is such like an ice queen. She doesn't want kids, which is one of the big points of the movie. And I think it's meant to be a flip of Alan Grant, but it feels super judgy where it didn't feel super judgy with Alan Grant. It's like she's lost sight of what matters. Like not wanting to be a mother is inherently bad in this movie. Um, from the Mary Sue quote, from what we see, this woman, with an entire park to run, has multiple responsibilities across multiple divisions and gets very little assistance, but has still agreed to take these children as a favor for her sister during a divorce. I would tend to agree that if you commit to watching your sister's kids, you should put the phone down. But it also seems like the weekend was pushed on her rather than worked out with her schedule, and frankly, Claire is dealing with this forced obligation as best she can. Nonetheless, Claire is presented very early on as a bad person of questionable morality because she has asked her assistant to watch the boys while she goes to work. I certainly didn't share Chris Pratt's look of shock and disgust when she makes the horrific reveal that she doesn't know her own nephew's ages. Yes, I remember that too. I was looking around like, oh no, does that mean I'm a terrible person? <laughs> Because it's very clearly portrayed that way. That's the problem. It's like you can have these storylines of, you know, someone who is too focused on their work and meets someone who kind of shows them like, oh, what about this? But if she wants to do her work, then yeah. And, and like it doesn't mean she's a horrible person because she doesn't have kids or doesn't know her nephew's ages. But it is... I remember that distinctly watching this, like, wow, she is, they really want me to think she's bad for this. And also it's a problem of writing, um, which we'll talk about a bit more, but she was just such a trope. She, would, she was such a superficial 
especially in, well, I don't want to say that, but in this one, which is the one we're focusing on, (laughs) she was very like the ice queen. That was her, even in her costuming, um, that was what she was. A quote from the Mary Sue continues, Beyond that, Claire not having children and declaring she doesn't want children also isn't some sort of fatal personality flaw, but Jurassic World clearly sees it this way, believing the natural progression of women has them evolving into mothers, and those who don't have that desire are somehow deficient of humanity. Despite claims to the contrary, motherhood does not equal inherent goodness, and not wanting to be a mother does not equal an inherent lack thereof for women. What about the many women who are unable to have children? Most importantly to the film, and this is where Jurassic World is really offensive, women who choose to put their careers first and or foremost are not doing it as a coping mechanism for what is really lacking in their lives. I'm sure some are, as are many men, but many have a passion for their work which they want to put front and center and that doesn't make them less of a woman or less a part of the world around her. While Ellie and Grant were discussing whether children would be part of their future as an option, Claire is being told she wants kids, that there is something wrong with her for not feeling that way herself. Claire's own sister tells her, One day she'll settle down, as if the life she has built is temporary, which might be the clearest piece of evidence that this movie was written by four men. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just the the pressure throughout that she must want kids. There's several shots where she's looking at kids with sort of a veiled longing, which is a fine plot point. But if if you're going to do it where in this like moral grounds of like she's bad because she doesn't want that or might not want that. That's not good. That's, that's the issue. And it is very, very, very heavy handed and how it paints that she is just missing. She is lacking something. She's just not complete and doesn't know it. Um, that's one of the most galling parts of it, I think. And I've heard that as a single person, too, of like, oh, you just don't realize. Oh, you just don't know. And it's annoying and incorrect. <laughs> um, here's uh, another quote from Mary Sue. As Marlo Stern wrote in his rather accurate review for The Daily Beast, the only character development we get in this movie is quote, a woman's evolution from an icy cold, selfish corporate shill into a considerate wife and mother. As if to say, don't worry, guys, that shill boss lady really just wants to find a sexist guy that will teach her how to behave and awaken that biological clock. Sure, her life's work is destroyed and hundreds dead, but she got a man who can give her that baby all women really want. Yeah, it is. When I was researching this, which again, wasn't what I really intended when I started this episode. But I did find a lot of articles about that in particular of in disaster movies, painting uh, women as they are this, the cold businesswoman, or the kind woman who wants a a baby. Um, Which when I was thinking about it, I was like, yeah, (laughs) I can think of a lot of examples of that. Uh, And then I found a lot of articles about how all the dinosaurs are female. 
um, and men are the only ones who can tame them. I think that's a separate episode, uh, but that's interesting. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. And then here is a quote from media. Owen, who's Chris Pratt's character, knows no wrong. When a fly is buzzing around Claire, Owen can slap it right out of the air. While Claire gets nervous even being in a helicopter, Owen rides a motorcycle neck and neck with velociraptors. Nothing scares Owen, not even violent man-eating dinosaurs because he is a manly man. There's certainly nothing wrong with Claire's fear in the face of a potential death via dinosaur, but her fear is not used to create a sense of realism or to pull the audience in. It's used to show how heroic Owen is. Throughout the film, Claire is mostly Owen's foil, and damn, he looks good by comparison. In one moment of the film, Owen is in need of rescuing from a pterodactyl. Claire saves him by shooting said flying reptile, we cheer because Claire reversed the roles and saved him. However, this empowering moment is short-lived, and I mean very short-lived. After being saved, Owen rises to his feet and immediately kisses Claire as she's preparing to say something. This move allows him to both assert and regain power and control. Claire is reduced to a blushing and embarrassed girl within seconds. Owen takes back his gun and retakes his role as the alpha of the group. So I thought that was interesting because in, in this very same article, um, they point out that, this, again, this can be done well. Like, it can be done where you have, in one way or another, kind of the the woman who's never been in the jungle and the guy who knows everything about the jungle. But the the key to it is that they're learning from each other and you're not necessarily making one more the butt of the joke than the other. She's 
Claire in this is consistently the butt of the joke. We're supposed to mock her. Like, oh, she's never gotten dirty before. All of these kinds of things. And again, that can be funny. Like, that that can be. But if it's done in sort of this very superficial, sexist way and meant to make the male character look way better, then that's that's the problem. I also thought this was interesting. I hadn't really thought about this. But I found this quote from Refinery29. The original Jurassic Park stands out among action films largely because its protagonists weren't regular action heroes. They were scientists. Cool ones, sure, but not the kind of people you would expect to be running around to juggle fighting off massive and dangerous creatures. And what's more, they didn't so much solve the problem with violence as they deduced a creative solution and implemented it. Jeff Goldblum may have reached peak internet icon status in 2018, but can you imagine him holding up an action franchise a la Bruce Willis? Sam Neill has kind of a rugged appeal, but he's not Rambo. He's not macho. If anything, he's a nerd who's just so excited to be around his long-lost monsters. And he and Ellie were equal and professional partners above anything else. Now, fast forward to Jurassic World and our hero looks very different like 100 pounds of muscle different. Owen Grady is a former Marine turned dinosaur trainer who, as we see in the beginning of Fallen Kingdom, enjoys building himself log cabins and living out of his car. He's the kind of hero who needs a love interest in order to shine, to redeem him as a hulky man with a heart of gold. Every shot of him is meant to emphasize how good he looks in his very fitted pants. We're supposed to admire his muscular arms, his ability to ride motorcycles alongside raptors, his rough stubble, not his intellect. I think that's that's a good point because a lot of the things that have really resonated with me when I look back, it's not the like, I do love a superhero movie, don't get me wrong, you all know that, but I, when it comes to this, I do like when it's not your super bulky, traditional, stereotypical man uh, who is the hero. I like when it's scientists who are thrown in this situation or, or whatever it is. And it did kind of flip it where he's definitely the hero. She is the villain. Um, and when you talk about, like, we we briefly discussed um, John Hammond in the original Jurassic Park, who we sympathize with, who is humanized. There has been some conversation about whether or not he should have been, but he was. Um, and Claire, who's sort of assuming that role in this one, is very much not, very much not, um, and is not doesn't have a satisfying redemptive arc. I would say she does do in the in the sequels. She does do some things, but it's it doesn't feel. Uh, this could go back to the writing, but it, it just feels like, well, why did you do that then if now we're having to solve this? <laughs> um, that's a whole different thing. That's a whole different podcast. But yeah, just the different treatments we got in the first of the Jurassic World series versus the first of the Jurassic Park series of John Hammond versus Clara is quite different. But yes, this brings us to Deep Blue Sea, which... I really did not think I was going to find anything written about this, but I did, listeners. 
<laughs> so as I discussed recently in a recent classic, I got this headline show up in my feed that uh, there was a petition for the original ending of Deep Blue Sea to come out. If you haven't seen it, yeah, it's not very good, but I enjoy it. Uh, it it's about a woman named Susan uh, who is trying to cure Alzheimer's. And for some movie science reason, that means experimenting on sharks and their brains in particular. And, of course, it goes wrong. And ultimately, it culminates in a lot of people dying in their team and then her sacrificing herself and dying. And I always thought the ending was sort sort of off. I was always like, huh, that feels a little out of left field. It turns out I was onto something because in the original ending, she survives. Uh, she has to kill the shark herself and she does. And it's much more of um, a redemptive, like I realized my mistake. I will take care of it. Uh, as opposed to her dying in this way, which was pretty graphic. And she doesn't have, like, I feel going back to what I said at the top when I'm talking about, like, you get redemption and then you die. It's not that. Because I feel like with the men I'm thinking of when I think of that, I had a long time to get that redemption. Like, three movies. <laughs> at least. Um, she did not have that. So it was, she just kind of died. And very unceremoniously, no one seemed to care. Uh, but... The director said the reason they changed the ending was because the audience was like, no, that has to die. And that's the inspiration of this whole episode. Um, so I do have some quotes about this. Here is one from Girl Type. In the film, Dr. Susan McAllister, played by white British actress Saffron Burroughs, develops a cure for Alzheimer's disease using the chemicals in the brains of genetically altered giant sharks. Burroughs possesses fashion model looks and seems the obvious candidate for romantic subplot with Carter Blake, played by white actor Thomas Jane, the shark wrangler with the cowboy attitude and boyish good looks. However, she turns down his friendly offer to share a beer, saying primly, it's all work for me, Carter. Susan's sexual reluctance has been established, and the film goes on to characterize her as frigid, cold, and calculating. Welcome to my parlor she says coldly when everyone enters her laboratory. Susan is a black widow, a spider woman, close to being villainized simply because she is an ambitious scientist and isn't attracted to the leading man. Um, and this, this essay was really interesting because it broke down a lot, of, a lot of the pieces of this movie. But one of the other things was the other woman who is in this group, because uh, the main group just had two women, Janice. And Janice, of course, blames Susan. Uh, so here's a quote. You stupid bitch, she cries at Susan, setting up their oppositional relationships. Within the film, these two characters represent a dichotomy of femininity, powerful, unfeeling bitch, and over-emotional, weak victim. Which is something we see a lot. I often think of Alien uh, when I think of this dichotomy. But it also goes back to what I was saying earlier, that that seems to be... Maybe not quite the same, but your business woman, ice queen, and your loving mother, <laughs> like those are your two options, which one? 
So the quote goes on. The next to go is Janice, who by this time is a total basket case. She falls off a ladder and into the water thanks to weak arm muscles and splashes around screaming for Carter to save her. She is suddenly jerked under the water by a shark, and the rest of the gang momentarily mourns her loss. Then she rises up again, arms outstretched in a weirdly graceful pose like a synchronized swimmer. Her legs are wrapped in an equally posed way around the shark's vertical snout, but its jaws are locked over her crotch. Janice screams and pleads and gouts, but stays carefully positioned like a ballet dancer as the shark attacks her between the legs. Amazingly, the shot of her emerging from the water like this is shown twice, once from the side so we can see where she has been bitten, and again from above so we can see her anguished face, slow-mo bobbing breasts and the shark's teeth locked over her pelvic area. Needless to say, I was astounded and disturbed by this image. Not only are the women's helplessness, weakness, and hysteria treated as normal feminine characteristics, but she dies as a prettily posed sex object. The shark gruesomely attacks her vagina, her biological difference from men, and the film glories in the image with elaborate camera work, slow motion, and repeated shots. In a later scene, the gang explores Janice's quarters looking for batteries for their flashlight. Jan was a healthy girl. Something in here has to run on batteries, says secondary white male Scoggins, the goofy member of the gang. Where would a girl keep her... vibrator noise. Thing. I was outraged that even in death, Janice got reduced to a dirty joke, reduced to nothing but her vagina. Yep. Yep. Um, And I did want to come... One day, when Samantha's better, I'd want to come back to this of the history of... In disaster movies, but movies and horror movies in general, of um, women getting consumed by monsters while naked or somehow skimply clad or are sexy or something like that. Um, and what, what that says. But in the meantime, the quote continues. Susan is also degraded sexually. She gets trapped by a shark and has to electrocute it with a nearby clump of wires. She strips to her underwear and stands on her wetsuit to insulate herself from the electrical charge. Shivering and pissed off, she cowers in her tiny white bra and panties as a flailing shark. Flames and sparks go everywhere. The scene may be an homage to Sigourney Weaver's striptease at the end of Alien, but in this case, I was especially angered. Susan is forced to strip to survive. It's as if the movie is punishing her for her earlier denial of Carter and gloating while she suffers, wet and miserable. And that, (laughs) I will admit, as much as I have had my questions of this movie, (laughs) which I don't know how to feel about, I always thought, you know, oh, they they feel like they have to put in this scene, very degrading scene of the woman stripping down. But that is a good point that she she turned down kind of this offer from your hot action hero guy. And now here she is, uh, almost as punishment. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, 
Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And then going to the ending. So at this point, we've got three survivors from the main group. We've got LL Cool J, the action hero guy, and Susan. And the shark is trying to get free. And they're like, we cannot let this shark free. And action hero guy jumps in the water, but the shark is coming for him. He jumps in the water to like, I don't know, stop the shark. Um, And Susan decides uh, she is going to draw the shark's attention. So she cuts her hand and says, come to mama and jumps in the water. And here is our final quote about that. The shark approaches her, regards her blankly for a long moment, and then gobbles her up in three very separate bloody bites. The film pauses deliberately before picking off Susan, and the subsequent destruction of the shark is like an anticlimactic afterthought. When Preach, L.O. Cool J's character, fires a lethal explosive charge, he whispers, this is for Scoggins. Scoggins? Susan is the one who sacrificed her life to help kill the shark. Scoggins was comic relief for Pete's sake. Yet Susan doesn't even get a hero's memorial. She's nothing but fish food to the sharks and her companions. I felt cheated by Susan's death and saddened by how little the surviving characters cared about her. So, yeah, I think that speaks to what we've been talking about is she wasn't very fleshed out. Um, She wasn't given a lot of moments for sympathy or redemption, whereas a lot of male characters like John Hammond were, are. Um, But it also is a very, very fair point that the shark's death is 
seemingly lesser than her death. Like, she deserved to die more than that shark. And you can make your arguments about that because she was, you know, ethically doing these experiments on sharks that that caused this whole thing. But she did want to make amends, and she was trying to. And the fact that we're more supposed to be more jubilant that she died rather than this shark is not the most... It's not the most fun thought. <laughs> um, I And I do, again, I say this as someone who really doesn't get joy out of um, death in a lot of media. But uh, this has always, always stuck out to me. And when I read that headline, I, like I said in that classic where I first mentioned this, I was like, I knew it. I knew it just fell off. And I, yeah... Yeah, I had forgotten that they <laughs> that they sort of just immediately forget she died. And they're like, oh yeah, this is for Scoggins. So her death felt kind of meaningless. All it was was like, yeah, she deserved to die. Let's move on. And I do think there is a conversation to be had about, you know, responsibility and her taking responsibility for what she did but I just feel very strongly that (laughs) this was punishing an ambitious woman who wasn't into the lead man and so we were supposed to revel in it as opposed to all of the redemptive arcs we grant men who are more fleshed out in terms of character but yeah, I, it's also, I know some of you are probably scratching your head and like, why are we talking so much about this bad shark movie? But it, it matters. The the stuff we consume matters. And I was curious. I, I was pretty sure I knew why, but I was curious why they changed the ending. And when I read it, I was like, oh, yep, that makes total sense. So the audience were like, yeah, just kill her. We don't want to have to deal with her. Um, and you don't have to like her. <laughs> Like in a lot of parts, she wasn't very likable. But that's part of the issue. I don't know. Maybe I'm talking myself in circles. I do have uh, other episodes coming up about Jurassic Park and some other disaster things, disaster movies. Um, But in the meantime, please let me know if you have any thoughts on this. I don't know if I'm the only one (laughs) out there. Clearly not. I can't believe I found some great essays about it. But... I would love to hear from all of you. Uh, hopefully, Samantha, we miss you. I don't know if you'll ever listen to this. I feel, again, I feel like I'm a child who's gotten free and can do whatever I want. <laughs> um, but we hope you feel better soon. And yes, listeners, in the meantime, you can contact us. Our email is stephaniamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast and on Instagram and TikTok at told you. We have a tea public store. You can get merchandise there. We have a book. You can get it at stuffyoushouldreadbooks.com. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Christina, our executive producer, Maya, and our contributor, Joey. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I'll Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring 
like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 